Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Hey, gang. So remember those times in high school when the teacher would come in and be like, class, put your notebooks away. Today, we're going to do something different. Well, this week's episode is a little bit like that. Our guest is Joaquin Simo of New York's Pouring Ribbons. The cocktail is the sidecar, and here's how we're going to mix things up. For the first time in this show's history, our guest brought in spirit samples for us to try and spoke through all the different thought processes a bartender goes through when considering what are the best ingredients to use for a specific cocktail and why. Now, don't worry. This isn't going to be an hour of two guys slurping cognac and sharing tasting notes. Instead, the experience digs right into what this show is all about, going beyond the recipe and breaking drinks down part by part and step by step. It's worth noting as well that the sidecar is an incredibly important drink from a historical and cocktail template standpoint. And it's definitely one of those that fits into the category of well-known, if perhaps underappreciated. Follow Joaquin's advice, and I guarantee the latter will no longer be the case for you, if it ever was. We're talking sidecars with Senior Simo, listener, and this week's drink is quite literally a doozy. Oh, and that thing you can hear right there? That's the sweet sound of the Cocktail College podcast flowing through your headphones. We are in the Vine Pear studio today. I'm your host, Tim McCurdy, and we are joined by Joaquin Simo. Joaquin, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm uh, thrilled to be one of the first people being able to record this live and in person. And I have to say, I'm greatly enjoying the view that you guys have from this office. This is pretty spectacular view of Midtown from here. It's a decent view, right? Yeah, does not suck. It does help for the, I, I think it helps for the inspiration during recording. So we have the curtain open and we're looking at the uh, majestic Empire State. It just looks beautiful up there. It's smiling at us. <laughs> and we're going to talk about something, a drink that's similarly iconic today within the cocktail field, because I think as much as any other drink we've covered so far, you know, today's drink is the sidecar. This is something that, this is a drink that historical, you know, um, iconic formula and maybe one of those that's also gone the way of perhaps not as ordered that much these days compared to before. What would you say? What would you say just off the bat about the sidecar? It is the most quintessential cocktail associated with brandy and specifically cognac. The way that you would think uh, the margarita is that for tequila. And that makes sense because they're both cousins. They're both daisies. Um, so that is, I think, right off the bat, when someone thinks brandy cocktail, they don't usually pull out Vieux Carré. They don't usually pull out yeah. a Champs-Élysées. They don't, you know, Jimmy Roosevelt. 
they always say sidecar. It's the first brandy cocktail I ever learned uh, working at a neighborhood college bar in in Boston where I think I made one of them once and I turned to the senior bartender uh, who's like, it's a margarita, but with brandy instead of tequila and lemon instead of lime. And it just made immediate sense. I'm like, gotcha. You know, and of yeah. course we had sour mix off the gun and <laughs> yeah, all <laughs> no, those not great a lot of fresh juice the there, uh, but yeah. you know, still we were making them. But that's a great point too, you know, about this being a very similar, um, very similar formula to the margarita, you know, in, in, in essence here. So we're talking about Daisy cocktails can can you tell us about that that specific category and is this is the is this the first because that's a template of cocktails right that, that's kind of recreated with different base spirits and ingredients but is this the first Daisy that that we kind of come across in history and can you tell us about the background of the drink yeah I think if we really want to go back to what the the origins of the drink are we're actually going back a little bit further or roughly contemporary to uh, the Daisy, and that would be the Brandy Crusta. And the Crusta uh, was, I want to say it was first published in the Jerry Thomas 1862 book, uh, but it was not created by him. He actually gave credit to Joseph Santini, uh, who ran Jewel of the South in New Orleans, which is actually, uh, uh, we have some good friends, uh, Chris Hanna and such, who opened mm -hmm. up Jewel of the South again down there, and they do a mean Crusta down there. So I've heard I haven't been there uh, since they've been able to to reopen. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Jerry Thomas misspelled his name. I think he called him Santina. Oh, no. Uh, rather than Santini in the book. <laughs> but we know it dates back to somewhere around 1840s, 1850s uh, in there. And that would have been uh, two to three dashes of gum syrup, gum Arabic, uh, two dashes of bitters, uh, two ounces of brandy, one or two dashes of curacao, uh, a teaspoon of lemon, and then a lemon peel for garnish. And that would have been the classic Brandy Crusta. And of course, the Brandy Crusta is best known not for what's in the glass, but rather for what's on the glass. And that was that thick crust of sugar mm -hmm. uh, wrapped around the top of it. And then, of course, that beautiful peel uh, mm -hmm. over the top. And, you know, this was served usually in a very small wine glass. Yeah. And the idea was you would find a lemon that basically fit in the, in the, in the wine glass and then you would take the peel of that and get it to just expand and fit. And then you do the crust. And so you would form a watertight seal around the thing. So it's something you kind of almost had to prep ahead of time because mm -hmm. trying to do that a la minute is really, really difficult. Uh, but then the point is then you could sip it and you'd be sipping it from the peel, not from the lip of the glass. Wow. So if you're trying to do it all in a minute, that's nearly impossible to do. You almost have to let that kind of sugar and the peel kind of form uh, a waterproof seal. And then you're able to sip it through that. Obviously, that's quite a bit of work. Yeah. Uh, so you can see where the crust soon gave way to a slightly less labor intensive version of it that um, that kind of moved away from it. Uh, the crust also typically had uh, maraschino uh, right. in it as well. And so when you start seeing the daisy, it starts to just become a curacao cocktail. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're seeing it sometime in the in the mid 1800s is around the first appearances of a daisy. You see it with gin, you see it with brandy, you see it with Hollands. Um, and the word daisy originates from uh, 19th century slang for something extraordinary. Uh, so it's the same word from which doozy is derived, oh, okay. right? So it's that's kind of where uh, that comes from. So 
you do get, you know, as always with these stories, as Dave Wondrich uh, tells us time and time again, uh, most of the origin stories that we've learned are probably false. But that's the kind of the issue with the boozy history is yeah. that the people who were there were probably drunk and no one remembers yeah. these all that clearly. Hey, and let's not let the truth get in the way of a good story. Absolutely not. Ah, it's just so good. Um, so I think... Really, we're looking at, um, you know, by the later parts of the 19th century, this is a, a super established template and it's being made with pretty much everything you can see under the sun, mm-hmm. right? Some combination of um, a base spirit, a liqueur, usually an orange liqueur, lemon juice. And then sometimes you would see like a, a, like a splash of uh, soda from a siphon. Mm-hmm. And that would probably have been I mean, so inconsistent because yeah. they never say how much, but you'd have to imagine it's probably about quarter ounce, half ounce. Um, you know, I, I would imagine, you know, they're shaking with very different ice than what we're shaking with now. So maybe a little extra dilution or adding okay. a little cold water in there to kind of keep softening it. Um, add a little effervescence as we know, shaken cocktails, you kind of want them to dance, yep. uh, on the tongue as you get it. So hitting it up with a little carbonated water is going to help with that. Um, so you would see it, but I think the best thing that we need to take back from this, cause we always think of a sidecar as a three ingredient drink, right? is that all of those early daisies did call for a few dashes of gum arabic syrup right so a sugar syrup in which you've had uh this kind of thickening agent that's gum arabic right and you, arabic where you've got a you've got to heat it up and you're whisking it over heat and it's just kind of a pain in the ass to make but at the end of that what you get is this crazy like silky viscosity that you don't just get with a regular sugar syrup, right? The mouthfeel of it is just so, so cool. And that's why people really love doing it. It was less of a sweetener and more of a texturing agent. Oh, and wow. Well, yeah. And that's, I think, the biggest misconception that people have about sugar in cocktails. And they're absolutely terrified of it. Everyone just wants to prove they have the driest palate as though like they're going to get a medal <laughs> for it as opposed to just losing all of the enamel off their teeth. <laughs> you know, it's like you don't need to have like no sugar in these drinks. You need sugar to balance them out. And I always compare like white sugar to to just plain butter. Mm-hmm. And then uh, something like a cane or demerara to being like a brown butter. Right. So it's like if you're cooking and you're making a pan sauce at the end, when you're throwing in that little pat of butter, it just adds body to it. Right. It doesn't make it a butter sauce, but it just like gives it a lot of heft and weight and it allows uh, all those other flavors to kind of spring forward. That's how it works in drinks, too. So if you're just adding a little bit of sugar to those drinks, a lot of time, if the problem with most uh sidecars is that they taste a little thin they taste acidic they taste sometimes even bitter like you almost get a pithiness Mm -hmm. uh on the finish to them that's really unpleasant a little bit of sugar a teaspoon of sugar cures all of that and allows all those other flavors to go so when you go back to those early daisy specs and you see that they're adding two to three dashes of gum arabic uh, you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. They knew it back then that this was like relative, like mm, it's kind of drinkable, but not really that pleasant. Yeah. So you have to add the sugar and they weren't scared to do it then. We shouldn't be scared to do mm-hmm. it now. 
And I know we're going to get into that later on yeah. in terms of your your own spec and your your own approach to this cocktail. But I was wondering if you can if you can tell us therefore just about I don't know the the, the most recognized modern day spec of this drink and where that kind of dates back to how we evolved from that kind of classic crusta into into the birth of the sidecar and, and its kind of modern day recognition. Well, as with any great cocktail, it is home to considerable debate. Uh, <laughs> and everyone's trying to take credit for it. But there's roughly three people who are making a, a fairly legitimate claim. Um, probably most famously is Harry McElhone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it appeared in his 1922 ABC of Cocktails. Um, and you, But you also see it in Robert Vermeer's 1922 Cocktails and How to Mix Them. Uh, but I don't think he was claiming uh, necessarily that he'd invented it. Uh, you also have Frank Meyer, who claims to have uh, invented it as well. And I want to say... And Frank Meyer would have been... Uh, Frank Meyer was bartending at the Ritz, I want to say, in Paris. And okay. then you... Uh, but the one who gets actually credited by Harry McElhone was a guy named Pat McGarry. And he was bartending at the Bucks Club in London, and he's the guy who created the Bucks Fizz, uh, which, you know, anyone who's ever been to a brunch now knows is a mimosa. Yeah. <laughs> so this guy's got a couple of classics under his belt. Like, Pat McGarry does not get enough credit, I mm-hmm. think, in the general public. Everyone's lionizing a mm-hmm. lot of other guys, but that dude makes two of the more popular drinks that you've ever, uh, you've ever seen, but... Uh, but these things, therefore, go back to their, you know, we're looking at Paris and we're looking at, you know, yeah. London to a certain, a lesser extent, which makes sense. Cognac, you know, being being the, the, the kind of main spirit that we'll get into here, but coming from France and also just having long ties to, to London as well, you know, yeah. those, you know, and in England in general. So you have two general schools then if we're looking at, you know, England and, and uh, France, uh, the French school. Uh, is an equal parts recipe, and then the uh, and then the English school uh, is more of like a two one one style. So you do have a little bit of uh, of a little disconnect there. The French, of course, love to take the credit uh, because they believe <laughs> that it was made originally in Harry's New York bar. And while Harry himself said that that is not the case, it's probably hard to argue that that's where it was popularized. Right. Right. And I think the the origin story, you know, the fanciful one is that it was like Armistice Day or something. You have the American army captain who would come up to the bar in the sidecar of his friend's motorcycle. (laughs) And, you know, that's what he wanted to have a drink that would warm him up before dinner. But, you know, it's immoderate to drink cognac before dinner. It should be lighter. Right. You know, the French and Lapido and their rules about, you know, what you consume before and during and after meals. Uh, so he mixed some Cointreau and lemon juice with it, and thus the sidecar was born. A beautiful story, and one probably as true as the mistaken, uh, the bartender who picked up the bottle of Prosecco instead of gin and created the Negroni Spagliate. You're like, you yeah, <laughs> yeah. a pretty dumb bartender to make that mistake. <laughs> yeah. They're not very um, similar bottles. Doesn't really seem all that likely, <laughs> uh, but it's a great story, and it does give a great credence to like where the name of it came. And mm-hmm. there probably was an army mm-hmm. captain who loved to drink and uh, was probably drinking the local hooch. So it's not that there isn't a kernel of truth to these things, but we probably do need to take them with a giant boulder of salt. And I think just in terms of when you're first getting into cocktails, you know, this is a drink that you will you will learn about early on. But I do love that as a name, the sidecar. Oh, it's right? a great name. It's a great name for a classic cocktail as well. And the funny thing is it's also become 
a word that gets used in a very different context, but also in craft cocktail circles where if you're ordering a martini or a Manhattan or a lot of stir drinks at a lot of bars, especially ones where they're favoring really small glasses, like a four or five ounce glass, uh, a lot of the times they will pour just you know two thirds of the drink in there and then put the rest into a little sidecar that they mm -hmm. set onto crushed ice and it's sitting next to your drink so basically like the last half of your drink is just as cold as the other part and you get to pour it in uh when you're going through it and i think that's a beautiful thing too so no matter how you want to view sidecar it's still playing this awesome role yep. in cocktail culture and mm -hmm. i love it both as an actual drink and both as kind of that cheeky accompaniment and would you ever sidecar your sidecar or I think no, 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 no. <laughs> it's not, it's not in that mold of stirred spirit forward martini. I'm thinking immediately. Yeah. I'm always thinking martinis. Daisies but, uh, are so crushable. Yeah, yeah exactly. So crushable. It's like, who's going to let it sit long enough? No. To actually get warm over, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, now I just this hopping up. Like, your, no, 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 no. You're gonna, <laughs> those go down awful quick. So. You mentioned that the kind of equal part spec there and definitely, you know, these days that 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 French spec, the two one one or two and then equal parts of the other ingredients. Right. Those are the more modern recognized uh, builds these days, the, the ratios. Yeah. I mean, I think the um, the uh, the French version with the equal parts is the one that David Embry included in the fine art of mixing drinks in mm -hmm. 48 and so that became very popular mm -hmm. because david embry um oh, so sorry it was the french that was the equal, parts, equal and the, parts and the british yeah. was the two one one yeah oh okay well that's another victory for britain thank there you very you much exactly <laughs> <laughs> sorry carry on but uh, david embry uh was a lot of things um opinionated would certainly be one of them uh not a bartender uh, would also be another. He was a lawyer, a uh, very opinionated lawyer. Imagine that, how few of those exist. Um, but yeah, uh, so David Embry backed up the French version of it. Um, and so he thinks that it is, uh, he also called it a version of a daiquiri, but with brandy instead of rum and Quantra instead of sugar syrup. And I'm like, but it also has different citrus. This seems like a big stretch. That is a stretch. I, I, I don't love Embry. Uh, I like, you know, I, I kind of enjoy reading him for, uh, for fun, but I don't care for his specs at all. Yeah. And a lot, of his, <laughs> a lot of his assertions that he says are just like indisputable are in fact very disputable. Okay. Um, but he regardless has published a book that has stood the test of time and is something that people do refer back to. Uh, but I think the, the one, 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 if you try it is basically undrinkable. And that's another thing too, right? You can talk about historical accuracy or you can talk about that's the undisputed, but ultimately the test is it's the taste test, right? Oh, and if it doesn't, if it doesn't <laughs> hold up, then so who cares? It's and that so makes sense bad. because we're talking as well about, you know, to, alcoholic beverages are very different proof and then mm -hmm. something that's not alcoholic and it's citrus and it's very acidic so it doesn't sound like how i want to mix this drink it's just terrible i don't love the 211 either but mm -hmm. i would definitely take that mm -hmm. over uh over the french over version the <laughs> of it um the sugared rim which is commonly associated with the sidecar actually doesn't show up until uh the 1930s oh really uh so it's not in any of the original recipes for uh the sidecar it just kind of, and it, it seems like something that they borrowed from the crusta. They're like, oh, right. look, it's basically that. Yeah. So instead, we'll just, you know, do it here. And I it's think also- It's interesting that that is the evolution, therefore, wasn't yeah. something that got brought along and dragged along with it. But yeah. it also makes sense, right? You can imagine some bartender at that point 
looking back historically and saying, well, actually, what we're doing here is essentially this drink. So let's bring that back. It makes sense. Yeah. I mean, and if you really think about it, um, that's just, uh, you know, what that would have been Prohibition era, Mm -hmm. right? Where if you look at the actual drinks that came about in Prohibition or the ones that were popular, what do they all have in common? They all have like fairly aggressive sweeteners. You're looking yep. at honey. You're looking at grenadine. They have texturing agents like egg white and cream because what were they mixing with? You know, especially in the U.S., it was, you know, a lot of stuff that was being stretched, a lot of stuff that was being adulterated, compounded, rectified. Yeah. Um, however you want to think about it, there were obviously using a lot of these things to mask the flavor. Right. Um, and so having something like sugar on the rim makes a ton of sense because you have this like granulated sugar that's giving you a lot of flavor right off the bat, even though it's not really, you know, doing anything to affect the sweetness of the drink. Right. Uh, and we'll get into that so a, a little perception. later with the garnish. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's certainly one of those things where that was not OG yeah. in the daisy, but you see it become an integral part of the... Um, of the sidecar and then kind of the savory approach in its kissing cousin, mm-hmm. the margarita with salt instead of sugar. Right. Where, so you do see daisies start to come around that always have some sort of rim. Interesting. Um, I, yeah. I'd never made that connection there despite always making the connection between the two drinks, but yeah, the salt, I don't know. I just always, for some reason felt like that was just a, a modern kind of take, but you know, we, uh, we, <laughs> we went to celebrate a successful, a uh, new business venture many years ago and we were we just sealed it it was in the columbus center and so we were already in the building where per se was we we're like oh why don't we swing by it's just when they're opening up maybe we can just grab a seat at the bar and we'll get a drink i got a martini my business partner got a a sidecar it was rimmed with salt oh no <laughs> oh no that, that did not work out that's not something you yeah. want to mix up no no i mean it's not great with sugar uh <laughs> it's legitimately terrible with salt <laughs> I think I I worked at a um, one of my first jobs in London when I was working as a chef. I was working at a um, kind of five star hotel, and like hotel kitchens are a weird vibe, very different to restaurants. And uh, we had one pastry chef who was very unfortunate because on one occasion he made donuts for a um, a morning meeting, and he deep fried them in oil that had been used for fish and chips oh, no. consistently. <laughs> clearly didn't taste his creation after that because he served them out and that was terrible uh and then the second one he did was he it was donuts again uh and and he rolled them in salt instead of sugar and those got sent as well so yeah that guy are are um, we sure this wasn't like some passive aggressive behavior on his part are we sure he didn't have it in for someone who was at the meeting he really like that person spoke to him poorly and he's like you know what screw you i tell you what pastry chefs (laughs) tend to be very quiet and, and keep themselves to themselves, but they do let anger build up. That's my experience, so maybe that was the case there. I, I know a few pastry chefs, and I can <laughs> definitely attest to that. Yeah, quiet but deadly. Yeah, absolutely. Watch <laughs> out for them. Do not piss them off. Um, so going back to that formula, you said that maybe the two one ones not your preference these days. We can, we can yeah. get into that after, but just general terms, big picture. What are you looking for exactly from a perfectly balanced sidecar. What do you want to taste in the glass? It is, um, it's all about harmony, right? Because really what you want is to make sure that the cognac is front and center. And when you say that, that means you're talking about floral notes, fruity notes, oak, and spice, 
right? So all of those things can form that backbone of that drink in, in such a beautiful way, the way like vegetal and citrus and, and salinity form the backbone of a margarita, right? So that has to be there. And then you have this marvelous marriage of two different forms of citrus, right? You have sweet orange and sour lemon. And those things, when executed properly, you kind of have this like dictionary definition of fruity, but not sweet, mm-hmm. right? And that's like that holy grail for, for a guest. Everyone who comes into the bar is like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want anything. You know, I like fruity, but I don't like sweet. And mm-hmm. they're like, okay, that's cool. You know, like, what do you usually drink? They're like, oh, you know, Malibu and pineapple. You're like, you have a very interesting <laughs> definition of not sweet. Okay, thanks. Um, but really, that's what you want, right? Like, that's what you want to make sure that you're getting all of those orchard fruit notes, whether they're cooked, baked, poached, dried, um, that you're getting from the brandy. You want yeah. all of those confectionery notes uh, from the barrel aging. And all of that should be kind of melding seamlessly with while simultaneously being uplifted by this like complex harmony of citrus notes, right? So you're getting candied peels, you're getting fragrant oils, you're getting that sharp sourness, right? And all that should end fairly dry. Yep. Right? Where you kind of have that. Yep. Right. That uh, what wine people call Moorish. Yep. Right, where you put it down, you're like immediately want to pick it back up again. Mm-hmm. That's a well-made sidecar, nice. right? Where it's almost compulsive. That's why you don't need a sidecar for a sidecar <laughs> because they just go, you keep wanting to go back to it almost immediately. It's just this giant uh, fruit bomb in a really, really cool way where you're getting two very different uh, kind of sides of the fruit spectrum mm-hmm. that end up just harmonizing beautifully. That's There's there's some real interesting points in there that I'd love to that just add to or or, or kind of reply to there because that's something I hadn't considered about this drink quite how fruity it is and you're so right because you know we're talking about that the orange liqueur right and lemon straight up but then cognac like you say and and certain bottles that we'll get into having this incredible range where it comes to maybe like fresh orchard fruits but also dried fruit in there too on top of all that, you mentioned the kind of the, the influence of barrel aging, right? All of these things are perception of sweetness without actually being sweet. So maybe that's why you have to be so careful with the sweetness that you're adding, right? Yeah. Because vanilla from barrels or whatever, or sure. right? Yeah, like these things trick the mind almost into thinking that we're drinking something sweet. Yeah, you add a touch of vanilla to something all of a sudden, it's not that it got any sweeter because the vanilla itself isn't sweet, but there's a roundness to those flavors that you translate as something that is sweet. And you associate vanilla with baked goods. Exactly. Especially sweet ones. And so now all of a sudden you have this like, oh yeah, of course that's sweet. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the times, like if you balance it right, it's remarkably dry, Mm -hmm. you know, not in an unpleasant way, but in that way that isn't confectionery that isn't cloying right it's like a grasshopper sits Mm -hmm. on your palate it coats your palate a well-made daisy does not it goes down and it finishes dry and clean Mm -hmm. and it it is almost compulsively drinkable is it as a as a template is it more forgiving than a daiquiri less so you think it's less forgiving i think it's less so uh and that goes down to the sugar uh, because what orange liqueur you pick up is going to radically change what it's doing in that drink, right? So if you pick up uh, Senior Senior or Cointreau or uh, Pierre Ferrand or Grand Marnier, depending on which one you're picking up, they're all at a different bricks. They might have slightly different proofs. 
so it's not as easy as uh, Mr. Potato Head mm-hmm. uh, to do that in there. Whereas with a daiquiri, you're generally looking at, you know, commonly either just sugar that you're dissolving, granulated yep. sugar you're dissolving in the lemon and the lime juice if you're super traditional, or if you're using a syrup, most of the times it's a one-to-one. You don't see it that often with a two-to-one. Usually it's white sugar, sometimes with cane, very rarely with something heavier. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like that sugar syrup gives you a more, since it has a higher bricks, so in other words, has more sugar, uh, it's a little easier to balance out, especially in equal parts with uh, with the sharpness of fresh citrus, where the liqueur uh, doesn't have the same level of sweetness, and it's usually done in equal parts with the citrus, and now all of a sudden you've got um, a lack of body that's going on. So I think it's easier to nail the daiquiri in terms of the balance where I think you really have to know your ingredients to nail the sidecar, which is why, annoyingly, sidecars are one of those perpetually disappointing drinks uh-huh. uh, in a lot of places. <laughs> <laughs> you get it and you're like, oh, not quite. That's a shame. Next time. Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful and very natural sec into our ingredients section. Oh, yeah. And I'm very excited today because this is the first time, uh, whether remote or in person, <laughs> that one of our guests has brought in ingredients for us to taste side by side um, as we talk through them. Um, obviously, we're going to go with cognac first, yes. and this is this incredible world. So tell us what you've brought for us today. Um, tell us about you know what you're thinking about when it comes to cognac and, and, and the different things that we're going to be sort of chatting through now. Absolutely. Well, I brought uh, three different cognacs, uh, two of which are uh, bottled at a slightly higher proof than is traditional for cognac, which is usually kept at 80. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of these are uh, bottled at 90. And then I have one very, very old one, a 40-year-old uh, example that is uh, absolutely wonderful and lovely. And we're going to get a taste of that. And then we're going to talk about why maybe the younger ones are actually going to translate better into gonna this be drink. Better for the drink. Wow. Yeah. Well, I am excited for that 40-year-old. But first up here, so we have uh, Pierre Ferrand, 1840. Yes. Um, tell us about this cognac and tell us about it, you know, within the lens of the sidecar. So this is a cognac that got developed. Um, two of the nerdiest people who I know who are also just absolutely lovely and wonderful hosts are Dave Wandrich and Alexander Gabriel. And Wandrich is, of course, a historical oracle uh, of booze. And then uh, Alex is the guy behind Maison Ferrand, who mm-hmm. does, you know, of course, the Pierre Ferrand line of cognac, but Citadel Gin and mm-hmm. the rums. Wonderful gin, by yeah. the way. Incredible looking stuff. bowl. Yeah. Oh, very sexy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he is happiest in some like room surrounded by old dusty books nerding out and trying to find stuff so he and dave obviously have a lot in common Mm -hmm. and they collaborated on bringing back a style called three-star cognac and this was a style of cognac that was uh very popular in the 1800s uh, 1900s and it was basically designed to be mixed Right. This was generally younger, uh, more fruit forward, floral, uh, bombastic, often light, slightly higher proof mm-hmm. as well. So this is not the cognac that you are going to sit by the fireplace in a snifter yeah. with an old dear friend while contemplating the mysteries of life. This is <laughs> definitely not that cognac. Right. This so this is, is one that at those those Parisian bars, they wouldn't have minded us having in some form before dinner then. Exactly. Yeah. This was definitely not a. Uh, 
something that was aged too long. This is young and punchy. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what you want because mm-hmm. once you start throwing lemon juice into things, you're still going to start to lose a lot of nuance. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's really kind of the beautiful thing. And is this a VS then? Because we, so, you know, cognac, we have VS, VSOP, XO, or is this just, it's it's not categorized, but it's specifically designed for this purpose? It's categorized as three star, which I think is a little younger. Okay. Uh, so that is an official I think categorization. Minimum, yeah. I think the minimum age for, for VS is, I think, a little younger, but knowing Alex, they always throw some old stuff into their right. stuff just to add a little balance, even if it's a fractional amount. Yep. So, but this generally just drinks as a fairly young uh, brandy. You got tons of floral notes, so much like yep. uh, rose hips, rose buds. And, and you can tell, you know, this isn't very useful just in terms of uh, an, an audio format, but you can tell looking at this compared to other cognacs, like this, this is lighter in color. I would describe this as kind of like a, a dark honey or, or, or you know. Yeah. Amber. Um, yeah, amber, an orange mm-hmm. wine maybe. Well, that's a spectrum these days. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you, as, as someone who runs a bar, you know, someone with intimate knowledge of mixing drinks, do you care too much when it comes to age statements or is it purely just profile what's in the glass? Age statements matter to a certain extent, um, if especially in cognac, uh, just because cognac has, um, I mean, there's, there's a price point to consider as well when you're trying to mix things. Mm-hmm. And so by the time you're getting into your XOs, mm-hmm. um, it's often not even like, you, they're not pricing a lot of this stuff on the liquid. Yep. They're pricing it on the glass that mm-hmm. it's being kind of. So if you have some like hand blown Baccarat bottle that right. it's going in, that's going to be a $2,000 bottle. Yeah. You know, and the juice inside of it is great, but I mean, really, you're paying for the glass. Yeah. And so there is this. I, I remember sitting at the bar at um, ABC uh, back when that was still open and watching someone order this like gorgeous, like $120 uh, Exo Cognac, but they wanted it in a basically a, a sidecar, but with lime juice. And I saw four rounds of that go over, and I was just like, that one single tear going down my face <laughs> as it was coming out. I'm like, God, that stuff spent decades in a barrel, and you're burying it in citrus. Yeah. Uh, and so that hurts, mm-hmm. you know, A, from a price point thing that should be enjoyed differently, but um, mostly because it's not going to make a better drink. Right. So you're spending so much more to make a drink less interesting, mm-hmm. uh, which I think, again, kind of, if you're going to spend that much, it should exponentially make it better right and it doesn't really translate that way with that so i i tend to go three star vs max vsop when it comes um, to co- uh, sidecars co- and sidecars yeah, in, in general just mixing or, in yeah, general yeah yeah fantastic and you can get away with it in something like um you can use something a little older mm-hmm. in something like an old-fashioned mm-hmm. you know if you're doing a, a cognac old-fashioned or a japanese cocktail which is basically that but sweetened with orgeat yeah um then you can get away with something maybe a little mellower because you're seasoning it a little less yeah. you don't have that aggressive uh citrus component right that's going on in there so at that point maybe if you have a light hand with your bitters and your your sweetener, you're still letting the spirit itself shine. But for the most part, I wouldn't I wouldn't be mixing with XOs or really mm-hmm. high end VSOPs. So I think you've given a great description in terms of the profile of, of this this 1840. Um, any other thoughts on this specific bottling? Um, before we move on to, to our next example that you brought with us. Well, I just like the balance of this. Like mm-hmm. all in all, this has just a really good balance between the floral, the fruity, and the spice, mm-hmm. right? The oak is there, but it's not overbearing. It's obviously not new oak, right? It doesn't have those big walloping notes. Yeah. So it's pretty, 
you know, all in all, it's really, really balanced. And all the flavors seem to be kind of turned up a little high. Yeah. It's like slightly high strung yeah. to drink it neat. And so you can see where it's going to be mixing mm -hmm. uh, really well because it, it tends to want to shout in the glass. And I, I, I think from a personal perspective too, just approaching this glass, it is, it's, it's intensely aromatic, but the fruit that I get in there, it's, it's young, it's vibrant. It's not these kind of decadent raisins or dried fruit notes, which are wonderful, but have a time and a place for me mm -hmm. when it comes to cognac. So this, I can immediately see how this is going to be a fantastic cocktail ingredient. Oh yeah. So we have our second glass in front of us here. Tell us about this cognac and tell us how it differs from the, the previous one that we've been discussing. I mean, even just color, if you mm -hmm. side by side of them, I mean, mm -hmm. this one's like several shades lighter. And so this cognac is? Duronyong, uh, the Duronyong selection. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is another one that is designed to be mixed. Mm -hmm. Again, bottled at 90 proof and pretty young, uh, made in a very traditional style all cognac by law has to be um the stills have to be operated with a live flame mm -hmm. um but this family i think it's a father and his daughter mm -hmm. actually they don't use gas for their flame which is really easy to kind of control right. they, they're using a wood fire oh which my they tend to during that process which adds just a whole nother level of complexity and let's face it badassery yep. to that approach <laughs> i mean you've really got to know what you're doing if you're tending to a live mm. fire while distilling mm. uh <laughs> <laughs> that 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 takes. that's that's ridiculous yeah and, that's pretty fierce and like you say immediately again not perfect for audio but this is this is lighter i would say yeah we're, we're much more kind of in honey than golden honey territory yeah. i don't know yeah and it just again to go to those aromas fresh bright floral wonderful for you know just lively yeah just so floral right so delicate this has an um this has an elegance to it that is just so pretty this one um it's, uh, it's doing a different dance, I think, than the 1840. The 1840 was like very kind of aggressive and kind of like not not a mosh pit, but getting, you know, yeah. kind of definitely getting very in there. Very robust. This, this is very like it's slinking around. It's, you know, it's subtle. It's, yeah. And so you can already tell that when you're mixing with those two, you may have to be adjusting your proportions a little bit. Yeah. Or maybe you're thinking, oh, if I'm picking a modifier for this, that orange liqueur maybe has to be more subtle. Yeah. Because otherwise it might drown it out. Yeah. Right. This more delicate, more floral driven uh, cognac. So, again, just always thinking about your uh, the best part about being a, uh, a bartender is knowing your modifiers. Yeah. So, like, you know, if if this base, then what what do you reach for to modify it? Whether that's a Manhattan, a martini, a sidecar, uh, knowing which uh, vermouth or which liqueur is going to be that perfect pairing for that. And that's where doing side-by-sides comes in really handy. Yeah. And, and that's super fun. One thing about this particular cognac as well, and it, by the way, it's a, a producer that we love here at Vine Pair. Oh, um, one of the, one, it, it wasn't this particular bottling, but one of theirs made our top 50 spirits list of 2021. This is, yeah, a producer that we love. And for that very kind of characteristic that runs throughout their range, which is bright and floral and, 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 delicate as you say but it's more like nuanced and you just got to be a little uh less heavy-handed with it, it i guess it caresses your cheek it doesn't smack you mm -hmm. yeah yeah there's a big difference <laughs> yeah <laughs> both are a hand to the face it yeah. just feels a little different it's 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 so different and like we said from appearance to to aromas and flavors um and so 
final one here for us on the cognac section. And yeah, I got to say, I'm excited. I believe this is the oldest cognac I've ever tasted. Um, So talk us through. Uh, This is a a 40-year-old bottling from Dudonyong. And I mean, just the color alone of this is many, many, many shades darker, even than that 1840, which was many, many shades darker (laughs) than the Dudonyong selection. So this has obviously got a ton of time and wood. Mm And then really the beauty of it here is at this point, it is all cooked fruit, dried fruit, you know, all of those notes. It's so much barrel mm-hmm. influence on here. And French oak is all about that, like nutmeg, cinnamon, so those baking spices mm-hmm. that come out really heavy, where American oak is more like vanilla, coconut, yeah. uh, lime, stuff like that. Um, the French oak is just just a spice cabinet yeah in there in all that and obviously we're going to the extreme here because it's 40 years old but this could essentially be you know this portion could essentially be like the xo portion right of of what we're doing and what we're talking about here we're just taking it to the extreme i just happen to have a bottle of this kicking (laughs) around i thought well if he's going to be nice enough to invite me i'm going to be i'm not going to show up empty-handed and i just happen to be nice enough to allow you to pour this you know you're very gracious (laughs) well can i just say as well that I, i again this is Something that's so important to me when it comes to tasting spirits in general, whether it's for cocktails or whether it's just something that you're going to drink neat, that age doesn't necessarily equate to quality. I've tasted some very old cognacs in my time and they've been a little tired. And you're like, I wish you'd released this or taken it out of the barrel maybe five years before Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. This is not one of those. (laughs) I have no idea what it retails for, how easy it is to get, but this is still so alive because you you mentioned that those fruit flavors have gone to another end of the spectrum but it's still so vibrant and and you know brimming with energy and i don't know i get candied ginger on there just all Mm. these it takes me to this new place that you're like yeah that's wonderful and what this thing has is one of those things that is very prized in cognac and indeed in any barrel aged spirit that's been long aged and that's that note of rancio right rancio is almost when those uh, when you start getting a savory, earthy, whether it's like mushroomy or kind of like forest yeah. floor kind of note that's coming out in there. And that's, you know, these volatile fatty acids over time that kind of degrade and they oxidize and they turn into this whole thing. And that is such a special thing to find in a distillate, right? It's like yeah. It takes so long to develop that over time. And it's so slow. The notion of throwing lemon juice into this is just anathema, right? right? Like, so <laughs> you can't do it. Talk to us then. Talk to us through the lens of the sidecar and these three, because you're right. This is, it's incredible that it's still standing up after all this time. But like you said, it's developed all this complexity that why would you bombard it with other ingredients? It just, it doesn't make sense. It's just that the, the flavors that this is representing best are the ones that take the longest to unfold, right? Like the, the, the beauty of this is the nuance, the subtleties that are being found in this and they keep revealing themselves even as it keeps sitting out and as it keeps, you know, um, aerating a bit and then you go back to you're like, oh, I'm getting different stuff now. And oh, wow, I'm getting, like, it's so subtle and mm-hmm. it's so beautiful and the progression of flavors and the structure, everything is just so perfect that you would never want to throw citrus into this mm-hmm. where the other two are perfectly lovely and, you know, you know, you wouldn't yeah. be mad about, you know, having having a sip of it. No, but. no, not at all. But more designed for cocktails. Yeah. And then for, is it horses for courses for you when it comes to the other two? Is it depending upon, you know, do you have a favorite 
in terms of which you would be your go-to for sidecars or is it more of a case of seasonal or the the profile of drink that you're looking to achieve in that moment I think sadly right now, um, the supply chain issues that are affecting just about everyone are also affecting the spirits industry. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you just have to go with the one that you have available to you, Yep. uh, which is a very realistic thing. But my default would be the 1840. Yep. Um, I do like how punchy it is. I do like how big and assertive it is. And I feel like that is a really fun kind of loud and bombastic way to introduce people to this great drink. Yep. Uh, The Dunen Young is something that I would... Um, probably save for for people whose palate I already know, yep. or people who I who I think are are ready to handle a change of pace, or people who I know value things that are a little more toned down. Yep, you know maybe they're your bamboo drinkers or stuff like that, yep. where it's like, oh, okay, here, yeah, let's yeah, have yeah. something that's a little, you know, you have to. It's the B side, exactly. But we all know, man. Sometimes yeah. the B sides are better than the A side. Oh my god, yeah. Don't get me started. There's some some fantastic albums just. Of all B sides, there's one so that, there's an Oasis one that I love, but that's going too far. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, okay. And then next, we're going to move on to um, our uh, Curacao, orange Curacao, triple sec. I guess it really does depend upon uh, the, the bottle that you're picking up. Yeah, exactly. And the the brand. I mean, there's so many mm-hmm. uh, between triple sec and Curacaos and mm-hmm. all of those things. You see, I mean, absolute rock cut ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, that are relatively low proof and full of like the cheapest sugars imaginable. Yeah. Uh, and then you have stuff that is, you know, made with some long age cognacs <laughs> as a base, right? Yeah. And, and stuff like that. So the, the range of them is absolutely enormous. Um, Quantro you, being the best known though. And, yeah. Oh, without a doubt. And mostly or almost exclusively um, used when folks are, are mixing margaritas, mm-hmm. uh, probably very popular too in terms of for this drink because most bars will have it there. Absolutely. You haven't bought Cointreau today though. Um, I so somehow was that. out of Cointreau at mm-hmm. both the house and the bar. And so I was not able to pour some into a little bottle to, uh, to bring it over. But Cointreau, but that's not one that you would typically reach for in terms of your build for this cocktail either, or? It depends on the on the cognac. So Cointreau, I think, would actually play beautifully with that Dudonion. Right. Because Cointreau is a little lighter. It's a little leaner. Um you have tons of bright orange. You get a little bit of vanilla, um, but it's not excessively confectionery. It's really focused on that orange note. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you're pairing that with something that's a little lighter and brighter, uh, like that Dudonion, mm-hmm. that's a really, really great harmony. With something that has a little bit more of that spice complexity to it, I prefer that Pierre Fronde 1840. Yeah. Um, and that is very confectionery. Um, you do have, uh, almost like a marzipan note. You're getting like all this beautiful nutmeg, mm-hmm. you know, in addition to the orange, right? I mean, all of these are, uh, made with the oils, uh, from the peels of Curacao oranges and Curacao is of course this tiny little rocky outpost, uh, just North of Venezuela. And, you know, it's, you're really close to the equator when you're that far South. And so the, the sun is very, very intense. So if you cut a Curacao orange in half and you look at it, it doesn't look anything like the orange that you and I would pick up at the supermarket, right? Which is usually like very thin peel, you know, eh, it's kind of medium, medium thin pith and then Mm -hmm. a whole lot of fruit. This is the exact opposite. I mean, this is a largely inedible fruit. You wouldn't be able to eat a Curacao orange. It's completely inedible. Uh, Instead, it has a massively thick skin, which is why... And the pith. And so because it's basically protecting itself from the sun. And so with all of that 
uh, thick skin, that means that it's packed with essential oils, which is why um, either liquor distillers or perfumers, who again distill, yeah. uh, have prized Curacao oranges for centuries because of how great it is at max orange flavor per peel. Uh, so a great Curacao is always being, uh, uh, is defined by that intensity of that citrus, right? And so the nice thing about the Pierre Ferrand that I like is that it's both done with unaged brandy and then it does have some aged cognac. So typically, uh, sorry, just there. to rewind one oh, yeah, second, that the Cointreau, therefore, the base alcohol, is that, a, is that a neutral spirit that's being used for that or... Um, I've never been too sure about that, but the, the I want to say it's a neutral spirit. I yeah. want to say it's a grape distillate. Yeah, um, but it's unaged. Importantly, compared yeah. to the yeah. the other two examples that you've brought today, and um, yeah, let's get into those. Yeah, number one that you've brought would be tell us, tell the us about it. Pierre Franc Dry Curacao. Uh, so, same guys who do the 1840, um, and in a, very similarly to the 1840, this was a collaboration between Wandrich and Alex. And they wanted to do a very classic uh, triple sec. They were, you know, three times distilled with the bitter peels. Um, and then they're marrying it with um, a little bit of aged brandy, some actual cognac, aged cognac. And the base of it is an unaged brandy. Um, they sweeten it with a sugar that they barrel age for, I think, a year in cognac wow. barrels. I've had a taste of this sugar. It is Without a doubt, the best sugar I've ever had in my life. Wow. I, I want everything with this sugar. I'm sure it's That's exorbitantly incredible. expensive if you're <laughs> storing it in cognac <laughs> barrels for a while. But, oh, my God, it's just crazy. And so what I love about this is just how confectionery it gets mm -hmm. on the nose where, you know, in confectionery, not just in terms of baking spice, but also uh, things like that marzipan note. Uh, you get a lot of candied peel. You get a faint bitterness to it, but really, I mean, it's it's almost luxurious. Yeah. Right. And but still, kind of, uh, it's still relatively dry for a liqueur. In terms of aromas, you know, we're, we're this is every spectrum of the orange on here, right? Like, yeah, we're we're getting the essential oils, the juice, you know, like maybe not all used within the distillate and the this, you know, the the liqueur itself, but you get that range and it's very representative of it. And the beauty of it to me is that in the mid palate, this thing spikes so high, right? Like all that big bright citrus just like creates this almost massive inverted V in terms of how you taste it. The entry is really easy. Yep. And then just the mid palate spikes yep. and it's all that beautiful thing. And then as it goes down mm -hmm. is when all that confectionery starts to happen. You start to taste the barrel aging from the, the distillates I went in there and the sugars and et cetera. And so you have this beautiful kind of journey mm -hmm. along there, but like that, that middle part is just that beautiful, beautiful, sweet orange. Amazing. And yeah, definitely sweet on the finish, but also again, lively doesn't weigh down the palate. You know, we're drinking this, tasting it on its own. Um, but it's, it's, it's still like at no point am I worried about putting this in a cocktail and describe, you know, the cocktail turning out what we might describe in wine as like flabby or, you right. know, do you know what I mean? Like this yeah. is very alive. And so moving on from there to our second example today, um, tell us what we have here and tell us how it differs from the Pierre Ferrand that we've just tried. So this is Grand Marnier. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so this is like kind of that OG cognac based yeah. uh, one. And, you know, Grand Marnier makes a, a number of bottlings and kind of the the more expensive they get, the less of the orange they yep. have and the more of the brandy that they concentrate on. So yep. this is their classic Cordon Rouge. Okay. Right? And this one definitely has the biggest note of orange amongst all of them. But even just smelling it, I mean, orange is front and center yep. without a doubt. But right when you get past that, I mean, you get all that beautiful aged brandy. Yeah, this is definitely more orange forward than than the, the, the previous example. Yeah. Oh, this is like this is huge. This is no shrinking violet. This yeah. is definitely the heavyweight <laughs> of it. And so this is one that you can pair with like that Louis Royer that you can pair with the eighteen forty really beautifully, um, because it is so so big and bombastic. It's mm-hmm. so you know unashamedly present in the drink. Like you're never going to. I mean, think about. Uh, do you remember at? Uh, at old bars getting a Cadillac margarita, mm-hmm. right? Which was a standard margarita, but they'd put a little float of Grand Marnier over the yeah. top. So even if it was like quarter ounce or a half <laughs> ounce, that made a huge difference in that drink, right? And that was like, uh, oh, wow, you're fancy. You're getting a Cadillac <laughs> margarita. Uh, but that little bit of Grand Marnier even can totally transform and elevate. Even if you were getting it with like Cuervo, roses, lime juice, and sour mix off the gun mm-hmm. uh, and like, and, you know, whatever triple sec they were using, if you got that little float of Grand Marnier, that covered up a lot of sins, <laughs> right? I mean, it's a very big ingredient. I think Eric Castro was saying something actually very similar in our Marguerite episode. I think mm-hmm. he's a big fan, big proponent of the Cadillac right there. Um, well, just, you know, tasting those different examples side by side, getting a sort of giving us a glimpse at all of the different options that bartenders such as yourself have when approaching these classic um, profiles, We can get into your spec afterwards, but let's just talk about the, uh, well, typically it would normally be one final ingredient in the drink, but for you, we're going two extra ingredients here. So talk us through that. Okay. Uh, I think we wanted to chat about sugar, first of all. Yes. And, uh, And of course, we talked earlier about how the sugared rim was not entirely traditional in the daisy and in the sidecar, uh, but rather was something that got added from its, um, from the crusta, it got adopted in the 1930s. And the rim, it's kind of the worst. It really, I mean, it looks pretty. Yep. If you do it right, it looks pretty. Um, but it's basically a poorly thought out corrective uh, for not enough actual sugar inside of the glass. And that goes back to like knowing your modifiers and knowing how sweet they are and balancing out how much acid to sweet you're putting in there. Um, so I actually prefer a rich Demerara sugar syrup and I'll just use a teaspoon of a two to one Demerara sugar syrup. So two part sugar, one part water. You generally have to do this over heat, uh, because the Demerara sugar crystals are so big. Um, if you don't, can't find Demerara, Turbinado, Muscovado, stuff like that also works, uh, really well. It's just a, a relatively unrefined sugar yep. with pretty large crystals. Uh, so you kind of have to break it down a little bit. Um, with a little heat, or if you have a Vitamix that warms things up anyway, so yep. you can just blast it in the Vitamix. <laughs> is very, very easy. Um, but I just had a teaspoon of Demerara to these things, and I actually brought some. It mm-hmm. is um, basically just uh, like that brown butter that I was talking about, but like steroidally so, right? It's super rich. It's like all this like lovely dark caramel, this toffee. You get all of those notes, mm-hmm. and those are notes that you get in barrel flavors, right? So adding that teaspoon of Demerara, you could do it with a one-to-one simple, but it won't add any flavor. It'll just add the fat, 
right? It'll give it the body that it needs, but it won't add that kind of complementary flavor. So I like the Demerara because it's going to echo a lot of those barrel notes that are going in there. Mm -hmm. But if you absolutely have to do the sugared rim, at least do it properly. Yeah. Right. And there's definitely a way of doing it. Um, if you do it properly, it uh, there's a term for it. They call it lacy curtains. Okay. And that's kind of what it looks like. It looks like you're peering through lacy curtains, right? There's this like, you can still see through it. It's not like this thick crust uh, that is impenetrable, but rather it's got a little pattern to it and it's really pretty. So if you're doing it for textual reasons, for aesthetic reasons, or simply because you like, you know, the... Uh, the f- the flavor, the crunch of that. Uh, to rim the glass carefully, you want to hold it upside down and you're going to take a cup piece of usually lemon and you're going to just rub that around like say a centimeter band uh, or so around the around the glass. And you're always holding it upside down. So if there's any drip, it doesn't go down the glass because lemon juice gets really sticky. Yep. And then continuing to hold it facing down but at a slight angle, you're just rolling it or tapping it into a little plate that has the sugar in there uh, until it's covered. You can do a half rim, you can do a full rim, whatever you want, and then just gently wrap the base uh, with the palm of your hand, uh, you know, over the sink or over that plate just to knock off the excess sugar. And then that should give you a beautiful, beautiful sugar to rim. You don't want to just do it where you're dipping the glass straight down into the sugar mm-hmm. after moistening the rim, because then you're going to end up with sugar on both the inside and the outside. And then that means all of the work you're going to do with your jiggering yep. could be rendered moot because now you have some undetermined amount of sugar that's coming from the rim. Got it. It's never a good idea. I Not mean, what we want at all. Exactly. Fantastic. And then final ingredient for us, and then talk us through your your specs and talk oh, yeah. us through how you'd make this drink. So the last ingredient is then the garnish, mm-hmm. uh, which if it's not going to be the sugared rim is usually a citrus peel. Mm-hmm. And lemon or orange can be used. Uh, the lemon is going to kind of dry out the drink a bit. Mm-hmm. And the orange is probably going to emphasize the sweetness of the drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's totally a personal preference. I'm much more likely to have a lemon peel garnish on a sidecar in the warmer weather and a orange on the in the winter time. Uh, it's much more likely. Uh You always want to, whatever you're doing, uh, garnish, do it before you make the drink. Uh, And that's something that everyone forgets. They're like, oh, garnish, you do it at the end. It's a shaken up drink. Those things have a really short window in which they are absolutely magnificent. So you always want to prep that garnish ahead of time. So peel the orange, trim it down. Um, I like to notch it where I cut just like a little line in the center and then I can perch it on the glass of the lip on the lip of the glass. Right. So then it's stuck on there and it, you can always smell it, but it's not floating around, you know, that yeah. little disc. So it's not because that's altering flavor again on this, this drink you just tried so hard to get perfectly balanced. Yeah. And depending on how good you are at cutting your peel, you may or may not have um, uh, too much pith, which is going to make it bitter. Uh, And so if that's floating around in your drink, it's just going to start getting more and more bitter and you don't want that. And moreover, like I have kind of a big nose and that whole thing of like that little floating garnish sitting there, it's like a dead body in a kiddie pool and you can't get away (laughs) from it. And it's just like always in the way. I just want it there. I want it to serve as an aromatic. So if I don't want to do the thing of like the trimmed and notch peel and you want to go classic, you want to do that little lemon pigtail twist. If you've got a channel knife, do the pigtail twist wrap it around a bar spoon or whatever, a chopstick, and hold that coil tight so that it actually has a really nice tight coil and doesn't just turn into one long, lazy loop. Um, And then cut a little, like, quarter-size, half-dollar-size coin 
of peel. And then when you're done with the drink and you've shaken it and you put it in the glass, put the peel over the, the pigtail, affix it to the glass, and then express the coin over it. So you get Perfect. the aesthetic and you get the, uh, the aromatic, right? Because garnish is not aesthetic. Garnish is aromatic. That's what people really fail to understand is that the true point of a garnish is to add to the aromatics if i taste a drink when we're r&ding it and the nose is flat the first thing i think is what garnish could we add to this because it needs help super interesting i'd never think like oh we need to make this prettier yeah like no if this thing smells amazing the last thing i want to do is to add a lemon peel on it right like let's stick with that nose but if the nose is a little flat that's when adding some oil or something is going to add all that brightness. It's going to add some depth and it's going to give you an idea as to what's to come. Mm-hmm. You're more likely to taste the orange liqueur if you have orange oil on the nose as you bring it up there, right? It's going to prime you for that. If you smell it, you taste it. Love it. Love that idea of, uh, you know, yeah, the aromatics of the garnish, but also, you know, like the different seasons when it comes to which which you're opting for too. So, yeah, can you tell us, therefore, your preferred recipe now and, and briefly run through how you would make this cocktail? Sure. Uh, my preferred spec is two ounces of uh, the cognac. Uh, I would default to 1840. Uh, three-quarter ounce of the Pierre Franc dry curacao. Three-quarter ounce fresh lemon juice. And... Uh, one teaspoon of a rich Demerara sugar syrup. All of that gets combined in a mixing tin, which I then fill up with ice. Uh, Don't be scared to add ice at home. Like, trust me, (laughs) you probably have better ice out of the ice cube trays uh, that are in your freezer than most bars have, which is like contact lens ice. Yep. Uh, And that's designed to stack and it immediately (laughs) like starts to melt and there's no integrity to it, right? You can probably make better ice at home. So don't be afraid to use a bunch of it and then shake it. Shake mm-hmm. it hard, mm-hmm. right? Like you really want to give this a good long shake. Uh, it should be slightly painful to hold it. If you're doing a two-handed shake, if you're, say, right-handed, then your left hand would be at the base. Yep. And it should almost hurt to hold it. And part of that is because it's a boozier drink than a lot of people expect. And if something is a higher proof or there's more alcohol in it, it will get much colder. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's where, um, you know, you want to have an overproof uh, bourbon for a julep. You want an overproof rum for a swizzle or a tea punch. Right. It's going to create that frosty layer uh, on the outside of it much more readily because alcohol like that bottle of vodka you have in your freezer that's not actually frozen. Yeah. Instead of kind of syrupy, (laughs) Uh, you know, if you put water in there, it freezes solid. So obviously alcohol can really withstand much, much lower temperatures. So the higher proof that things are, the more booze it's in something, the colder it'll get. So that yeah, left hand's almost going to be stuck on. You're going to peel a couple fingers Mm -hmm. off of it and you know that it's in a good way. Um, And so you shake it long and then you just strain it. I generally don't find strain most drinks. Yep. Uh, I know I'm in the minority of a lot of craft bartenders in that, but I found if you drop your gate, um, so if you really know how to use a Hawthorne shaker and you bring that thing down, that should get rid of nearly all of the ice chips and should get rid of most of uh, the things that would be floating in there normally. And that just does the trick for me. I don't really love fine straining. I feel like it. you lose some of that aeration. You yep. lose some of the texture yep. uh, when you do it. So I don't fine strain most of my drinks. Egg white drinks, yes. Cream drinks, yes. Got it. Um, but for this, the Hawthorne strainer is just Hawthorne strainer perfect. deployed well uh, is usually all that you need to do. And um, coupe glass are you going for there? Yeah. Yeah. And I like something that maybe is a little bigger 
than you might think. I don't I don't love this glass and like something that where it just barely fits. I like a little wash line to that. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to be a little more forgiving. That kind of giant margarita glass where you know you you've got room for yeah. everything and you can pick <laughs> it up without feeling like you're going to spill it. There is something comforting about that, and hey. this is a big drink. You know. They're, you know, they're both daisies. Oh, yeah. Why, why does the margarita get its own glass, by the way, and the, and the, and the sidecar doesn't? Or we've spoken about the sidecar, but that's a very <laughs> different topic. But, you know, where's the sidecar glass? Or maybe, you know, maybe you just use the margarita. I mean, I, I just love those uh, those big oversized coupes. Yeah. Um, I really love those for that. You can find beautiful examples of them uh, all over the place. But even something like a seven, eight ounce glass. You know, something that's a little bigger, not one of those like giant, like 11 ounce, 12 ounce glasses. In a garden Cosmo glass. Yeah. I mean, you could baptize a kid in one of those. Uh, You definitely don't need something that size, but like an eight and a half ounce glass, I would probably top out at for this. And you get a beautiful wash line on it. It's comfortable to hold. You got plenty of room. The aromatics have a little bit of room to develop. Um, So I really, really love that. Um, That's probably my my go-to glass for that. And I always just chill it, you know, throw it in the freezer for a little while. Or if you have ice and water, you can do it that way. But, you know, even 10 minutes in the freezer is going to cool off that glass quite a bit. Amazing. Well, on the subject of chilled glasses, I actually <laughs> do have one in the freezer <laughs> right now. So, Joaquin, this is this has been amazing going through the sidecar, going through all of the different components, getting to actually taste them in this episode. Yeah. Um before we delve into our final stock questions for the show, how about we mix up a couple of sidecars and then we jump into it? How does that sound? Oh, it's great. Uh, oh, one last thing before we um, before we go, just uh, a couple of rules of thumb oh, for, for the okay. people at home who are going to be making Sorry, this. I'm jumping the gun oh, no, here. No, no, I'm, thinking totally about my, I'm thinking about my coupe glass in the freezer there. You got just, me on a different... But rules of thumb sure I love. People don't screw things up. Um Build your drink upside down. If you're reading the recipe base spirit first, build it from the bottom up. So if there's a bitter in there, if there's a teaspoon of something in there, a quarter ounce, often those are your, um, those smaller ingredients are your cheapest and stickiest ones. Throw those in first, then add the citrus and eventually get your way to the base spirit. If you screw up at any point and you have to throw it down the sink, you're not throwing out two ounces of expensive booze. You're throwing out 17 cents worth of mixers, right? So definitely always build your drinks upside down. It's just so much easier. And when you're actually measuring them, don't measure it right over the, the mixing tin. Right or the main like because then you if can there's always any add more, excess, you can take it away. It's just gonna go right in the one place you don't want it to go. That's why we have drink rails at bars so we can you know do it. I always just tell people hold your jigger at about five o'clock. Mm-hmm. Right, if the if the mixing tin is a is a watch face facing, you hold it at five o'clock, mm-hmm. right next to it, so you can pour it in. You get that you know beautiful positive meniscus pour. And you just tilt your fingers and it goes right in, right? Perfect. It's none of this. I'm going to hold it close to me and I have to get it 18 inches over to the mixing glass and I'm hoping I don't spill. Don't do that. Hold <laughs> it right next to it, not over it, but next to it. And you can get it in there super, super easy. And then I guess last but not least, a general warning about daisies, uh, whether they're margaritas, sidecars, kamikazes, cosmopolitans, whatever they are, because those are all daisies. Do not underestimate them. Because they're so much boozier than than the standard sour, right? Yep. If I'm drinking daiquiris and you're drinking sidecars mm-hmm. and we have three rounds, you are up a daiquiri on me yep. in terms of ABV, in yep. terms of total alcohol consumed. Because all of those orange liqueurs that we just talked about, they're all the same proof. Yep. Uh, roughly as the base spirit. So those are all 40 proof. Yeah, we're quote 40% unquote, alcohol. We're quote unquote 
sweetening with booze, whereas in the in the sour, we're talking about simple yeah. syrup, sugar, whatever. Two seven five ounces of eighty plus proof booze in a daisy, as opposed to two in something like a daiquiri or a gimlet. That catches up with people. And trust me, I run a bar that's on a second floor. I'm hyper conscious of <laughs> making sure that people are able to get down that stairwell safely uh, mm-hmm. as they're going there. But also if, you know, you just have people over at home and they have to, you know, get on get onto a subway platform. And yep. They have to, you know, have an help but get into a car and go home or whatever it is like you want to make sure that you are being a good host. Right. And that's so much of uh, being a responsible a uh, bartender, a responsible host, is looking out for your guests and making sure that they're the people who are drinking the the daisies aren't trying to keep pace with the people who are just drinking highballs or sours mm-hmm. because those two are not made the same. They're boozier than a martini. They're boozier than Manhattan. Wow, you know because it's so much more booze, right? Vermouth is really low proof. Yeah, so even though it has a bunch of vermouth, <laughs> an ounce of vermouth in there, three quarters of an ounce of vermouth it's still lower proof than that margarita, which you can guzzle down. That's so, such a great point. And not deadly. something I ever considered. Yeah, I think because, yeah, we are adding those other components. You just don't think about it, but a lot of booze in there. It's amazing how much citrus mellows out the bite of booze. Yeah. It's amazing how much it does. <laughs> Wonderful. Cool. Well, we're going to take a short break and we're going to jump back in straight away afterwards. All right. Oh, wow. And we are back. And... I will just say for the record, this is one. I mean, I'm hope I hope folks listening always make our guests drinks after we've gone through them. But this is one you are definitely want to go. You definitely want to go out there, find the ingredients that Wacking has spoken about here. Definitely go for the Demerara simple uh, simple syrup. It's just this is a wonderful uh, sidecar. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. Glad you're enjoying it. And I have a yeah refreshment here as we go through our stock questions. So how are you feeling about those? Are you ready? Oh, I'm definitely ready. Fantastic. Well, let's kick it off. Question number one. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? Well, as a good Latino, I do have to say there is an awful lot of agave distillates and an awful lot of rum on my back bar. That's probably the biggest categories that we have mm-hmm. uh, and again both of those just there's so much within each of those uh even from white rums just alone the range that you can find in that one category just, and then you start going country to country and the stylistic differences it's just amazing uh, and then mezcal i mean all the and tequila and all the different agave distillates and we keep finding different ones and yep. new ones and we keep yep. getting more and more it's just a the most delicious rabbit hole you can get lost in. So that's probably what occupies the biggest amount of real estate, both in my home bar and as well as on the the back bar pouring ribbons. Amazing. Love it. Question number two, which ingredient or tool do you think is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Ah, that would be an unending reservoir of patience and goodwill towards humanity. Uh, (laughs) You are going to need it. I think that is, without a doubt, the most important thing that you can have as a bartender is you actually genuinely have to like people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you have to be patient. You have to know that there are people who are going to come and sit at your bar who are having the worst day. And if they're a little rude to you at the beginning, this is not a time to to write them off or something. Rather, take that as a challenge mm-hmm. and see if you can get them to leave in a vastly better mood than what they walked in with. You're going to find you're going to see that face coming in again and again. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, wonderful piece of advice there. And a nice kind of segue into our uh, third question here, which would be, 
What's the most important piece of advice that you've received while working in this industry? It was at the first bar job. It was at a rock and roll bar in Alston um, that I was doing day bar at. Uh, and I, part of my, part of my daily duties was to go and buy every newspaper every day and have them lined up and ready to go. And the bar opened at noon and no one would show up before two. So from noon to two, I just sat there and read every newspaper. And that was the best thing Hmm. possible for me because someone would walk in and they wanted to talk about sports. They want to talk about what movies were playing. They want to talk about what shows were in town, who's playing who, what's going, you know, what's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. You were prepared for it. And I think that is the best thing because I think it was Jim Meehan who said that mixologists serve drinks and bartenders serve guests. Mm-hmm. It's I love a it. really important thing to remember, right? Like we, not everyone wants to listen to a dissertation about bitters. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like you're way more useful to your guests if you have a good restaurant recommendation, mm-hmm. if you have, uh, if you can tell them who the Yankees are playing this weekend, yeah. you know, if they're coming in from out of town, like what they shouldn't miss, like that's way more instructive than being able to detail uh, the finer points of this Amaro versus that one. I think that is one of those things that just instantly allows you to relate to so many more people is just being informed enough uh, to ask a good question. You don't necessarily have to pontificate on these things, but even if that person knows something, you can then ask the right question that allows them to be the star. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. I love it. And it's, you know, so much of what we get into in this show, we go real deep on the drinks, but it's an important reminder that that's really only probably 50% of the job. Oh, yeah. M- less than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Much less than that. I would say if you're doing it right, it's much less than that. Wow. Yeah. Wonderful. Question number four. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, past or present, what would it be? Uh, well, that would be the, the bar at the Connaught Hotel. And Ago Peroni would have to be the one bartending. If I could go there, that every time I step in that room and you walk in and you see that bar and there's this giant silver basin sitting there with just bottles of champagne on ice right there. If you're not celebrating already, your mind immediately starts racing to think of an excuse to celebrate. (laughs) It's just one of those where you just walk in and you're like, oh my God. And then, you know, the whole show of the bar, Ago comes by with the cart and he's just so impossibly elegant and Italian and stylish and wonderful. And he does that really annoying thing where his, he'll start pouring very low and then he'll go up and up and the stream never changes. And even though he's pouring into a V-shaped glass, there's never a bubble that forms on the surface. Like this man has defined the laws of physics (laughs) as he's bartending. And you just are sitting there like, wow, I'm really bad at my job. It's just impressive how much better he is at that. So if I have to have one last bar experience, yeah, let's make it the Conan. Yeah, amazing bar. Really wonderful. wonderful. Final question for you. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? I would do a Sazerac with the Pappy 13-year Family Reserve Rye. And I would do that for a couple of reasons. A, that's probably my favorite American distillate of all time. It is unbelievably beautiful. And we used to just get bottles of it for not that much money, 30, 40 <laughs> bucks. Uh, and now it's, you know, distilled Gone unicorn tears. Yeah, it's useless to try to find that now. Um, not unless you want to pay, you know, a price with a <laughs> comma in it. So it's pretty, pretty, pretty rare now. But I, I love it for the flavor. It's just one of my favorite mm-hmm. uh, distillates. But 
I would pick it in that drink as opposed to neat or in a Manhattan because a Sazerac for me takes a really long time to drink because I don't love the Sazerac on the first sip. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if it's going to be my last drink, I also don't want it to be a daiquiri that's going to be gone in like Free sips, 46 ideally. seconds. <laughs> um, I really want it to be something that I'm going to be able to linger over. So if I order a Sazerac at a bar, I usually order a Sazerac and a beer. Mm-hmm. And I'll take one sip of the Sazerac at the beginning, and then I'll set it down, I'll drink the beer. And then after whatever, seven, ten minutes, uh, when I'm done with the beer, I will then go back to that Sazerac, Probably and I will right then... There drink it and i love when the the nose is no longer dominated by the absinthe and the uh lemon oil but rather when you start to get that peychaud when you start to get all the beautiful uh the base distillate in there when mm-hmm. all those flavors start coming out and you can just hang out with it for like 20 30 minutes and it's not going to get over diluted because there's no ice mm-hmm. and you can just take your time with it oh that's my happy place with the sazerac oh, i love it i'm a i'm a martini drinker you know at heart but when i'm moving into aged spirits i i go straight to the sazerac i yeah. look past the old-fashioned or the manhattan it's the it's the sazerac that's my it yeah. just sits better than any drink that i know and um i was an english major so i say terribly pretentious things like this cocktail should have a narrative arc <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and often you know when you really see that that's happening in a sazerac it's weird because sometimes you'll be like oh it's gonna mellow over time and this one it's just a temperature thing as it goes from very cold to like lukewarm to to room temp the range of flavors that you're getting out of it is just so astonishing where that first sip there's almost no relation to the last i love that journey amazing well really wonderful really wonderfully put and thank you so much for joining us today Joaquin. it's been a real pleasure absolutely mine thank you Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Grinberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.